Howdy. This is Too Busy for Crypto. This podcast is for fans of cryptocurrency who want to increase their financial literacy and cryptocurrency literacy. This is not financial advice. I am not an expert. I am an enthusiast. This podcast is for education. This episode is titled ETFs and Mutual Funds. From the standpoint of regular people, mutual funds and exchange-traded funds, ETFs, have, in some ways, become more important than the stocks or bonds they hold. In finance jargon, a regular person is called a retail investor. These funds give novel powers to both the investor and the issuer. Everything has trade-offs. The negatives are borne mostly by the general public, rather than by only retail investors. The positives are that these financial products make multi-asset investing more accessible to regular people. Mutual funds are a major contact surface that regular people have with the financial markets if they participate in a 401k plan. This episode's outline is Part 1. Definitions Part 2. Risk and Diversification Part 3. Structure and Makeup Part 4. Negative Externalities Part 5. Comparing Funds Part 6. Implications for Cryptocurrency Part 7. The Closing Summary Let's begin. Part 1. Definitions Because I want a shorter way to say ETFs and mutual funds that is not an acronym, I will just say FUND when referring to both. Funds are investment companies. Investment banks and broker-dealers are types of companies that create and market funds. Some commonly known retail broker-dealers are Vanguard, Charles Schwab, and Fidelity. Some commonly known investment banks are Goldman Sachs, State Street, and Morgan Stanley. Broker-dealers are not technically banks. They interact with banks and therefore must follow banking rules. They act like banks in the sense that they custody customer funds, but they are not insured by the FDIC. Investment banks and broker-dealers spin off subsidiary companies called funds that are run by a manager and staff who buy and sell securities, do financial reporting, and do marketing. There are different types of funds. The most common type is an open-ended fund known technically as an open-ended investment company. This is mostly what I will be talking about. There are also closed-end funds and unit investment trusts. All types of funds are defined by the Investment Company Act of 1940. This episode, I will be talking about open-ended funds that are offered by banks and dealers to retail investors. Banks and dealers usually offer many funds besides their own, but they will bake in incentives for their customers to use their funds, such as low fees. Part 2. Risk and Diversification Why were funds invented? Funds exist 
in theory, to mitigate risk to investors by making diversification more accessible. The industry forgets to mention the negative externalities to the general public that benefit the creators of funds. This part is about the public narrative regarding the benefits to investors. When the industry is talking about how they treat investors or what investors want or need, there is extreme emphasis on the idea of risk as a major problem and diversification as one major solution to that problem. If you research human psychology, such as the work of Daniel Kahneman, you may find that human beings most often use risk of loss as the default factor in decision-making that is considered fast, intuitive, or emotional. The industry has woven this truth into the fabric of the system. It is a major component of how they regulate themselves and how they create and market products. In some sense, this is good, because it acknowledges basic human psychology. In another sense, this is bad, because the industry communicates robotically with a narrow focus. Diversification is the most promoted strategy in the industry, as a way to mitigate risk of loss. The idea is that money sitting in one spot has a risk of loss that is 100% dependent on that spot. If a person splits money across several spots and each spot carries unique risks, then losses get compartmentalized to the portion of money in the bad spot. Diversification is a strategy of splitting risk into compartments. One assumption is that the compartments are shut off from one another, rather than being correlated. Another assumption is that the spreading out of risk of loss is more beneficial than concentrating risk of gain. These assumptions take time to discuss. I will simply say that they are imperfect and move on. Part 3. Structure and Makeup Funds are open-ended investment companies that buy securities, like stocks or bonds, and then sell shares of themselves to investors. Open-ended funds adjust their share count daily. The share supply changes based on total money received from customers, which is used to buy securities to back the shares. Fund managers follow the fund documents to decide what to buy. These decisions are usually related to a market index. An index is like a grocery list with an objective. If you want to have a sandwich for lunch and stew for dinner, then the index describes all the items and quantities and prices required to meet that objective. Example. A rating agency called Baskets publishes an index of the top 500 publicly traded companies. A fund company called Big 500 Fund says it will buy stocks to match the Basket 500 index. A million retail investors tell their brokers that they want to buy $1,000 of shares in the Big 500 Fund. Big 500 receives $1 billion total. Big 500 uses the Basket's 500 index to decide how to split the billion dollars 
into purchases of 500 stocks that match the relative quantities in the index. Big 500 buys all the stocks needed to match the index. Big 500 decides each share is $25. Every investor who put in $1,000 gets 40 shares worth $25 each. Each share represents risk and reward exposure to all 500 stocks in the index. If Big 500 Fund gets dividend payments from the stock it owns on behalf of the customer, then they will distribute the required payments per share to shareholders. If the price of the shares owned by the fund goes up in price, then the price of each fund share will go up by the net increase divided by the number of shares. That example describes a typical open-ended fund. How do fund shares assign price per share? As with all securities, the very first initial share price is an arbitrary choice by the issuer. That price is determined during an IPO or initial public offering. An issuer that markets to regular people may set the initial share price between $10 and $50 per share. This is the first price ever and it is determined the day of launch. After an IPO launch, supply and demand take over price discovery. On a stock exchange, price is determined by the ratio of buyers versus sellers right now versus during the last sale. Share prices can adjust every millisecond if that is the rate of exchange. Brokers are the point of sale and exchange. This is direct price action in a market. Fund shares also experience indirect price action. The lag is so short that a human cannot detect it. The price of fund shares must be a reflection of the net asset value of the holdings. The fund gets or loses money, then it buys or sells shares. When the fund buys or sells underlying assets, that moves the asset price, and then the fund divides the net asset value by the number of fund shares to get fund share price. This is indirect price action. Indirect price action is a sign of a derivative product. Funds are both a derivative and a middleman. ETFs versus mutual funds. What is the difference? Mutual funds have existed longer than ETFs. Some history from the website Investopedia. The first modern mutual fund was launched in the U.S. in 1924. The oldest mutual fund is still in existence and was established in 1924. The first American ETF was launched in 1993. There were 102 ETFs in 2002, 1,000 in 2009, and 7,000 ETFs in 2020. Mutual funds came into existence as a new form of an old concept the pooled investment. Mutual funds allow people with small amounts of money to gain exposure to the market. This issue is called accessibility. 
historically, mutual funds have had minimum dollar amounts for investment. In recent times, many companies have dropped minimums in order to get as many small dollar investors as possible. Mutual funds and ETFs differ in how the investor acquires shares. A mutual fund takes money from the investor and awards shares during market hours. In theory, the fund acquires the assets it needs after regular market hours. These days, it is probably almost instant. What matters is that the customer cannot sell the shares until the following day. For a long time, mutual funds were in the practice of charging $50 per transaction, in addition to having sales charges and investment minimums. Funds have backed away from this practice slowly since internet brokers started giving retail investors the ability to transact from home without calling a broker on the phone. ETFs have gained popularity because a person can buy and sell an ETF share from one minute to the next with a low or no transaction fee and no minimum investment other than the ETF share price. The user experience on the transaction was improved to be the same as a stock transaction. There was a time when people paid transaction fees for stock and ETF trades, but that time is long gone. This is because high-frequency traders use brokers that have high trade volumes. No transaction fees for regular people lead to higher trading volume that high-frequency traders can take advantage of. The trade-off for the improved trade experience with an ETF is giving up a low minimum investment and automatic reinvestment. The minimum investment of an ETF share is its share price. A mutual fund can award fractional shares because they are an abstraction of many underlying assets. ETFs pay dividends directly to holders as cash. Mutual funds mark a transaction for dividend received as cash, but then immediately follow it with a reinvestment purchase of additional fractional shares at the current share price. Fractional shares are what allow mutual funds to perform automatic reinvestment when ETFs cannot. To summarize the differences, ETF shares can be bought and sold like single stocks, but mutual funds can have lower minimums and automatic reinvestment due to fractional shares. Part 4. Negative Externalities Pooled investment funds seem like a win-win for everybody involved. Funds impact the general public in a way that is not obvious. We must consider and connect the following dots. 1. Investment funds harbor trillions of dollars. 2. Fund managers exercise voting rights on managed assets. Commoners who bought fund shares have no voting rights on fund assets or fund managers. 3. One or more funds with enough equity ownership in a company can exercise influence on that company's board of directors with or without a direct seat on the board. 4. Humans who obtain power usually exercise that power. 5. 
Groups who share a common ideology can affect the trajectory of society by imposing their ideology on businesses through ownership power. Case and point are ESG funds. ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Factors. ESG is an ideological campaign by those who favor capitalism for the rich and socialism for the poor. What is the ESG scam? Companies who create funds can create ESG funds. ESG funds assign or use ESG scores to companies, whether those companies want to be scored or not. Companies with higher scores get their stocks purchased by ESG funds. That is the key element. Since those companies are having their stock purchased, their stock goes up in price, and then board members and executives at ESG companies benefit from the increased stock price, because they hold the stock. Then, if the company ever steps out of line, the fund lowers the company's ESG score and sells company shares, resulting in a dropping stock price for that company. ESG scoring is both a bribe and blackmail, based on compliance to socialist ideology rather than to the capitalist rule that companies should maximize shareholder value. ESG scores do not even appear to be consistent with their own ideology. Simply look at who gets high scores versus who gets low scores. In the energy industry, you might see a big evil oil company getting very high ESG scores, and then for some reason, companies that promote renewable energy or electric vehicles get low ESG scores. ESG is an example of negative externalities. Funds can have negative externalities because investors give up their voting power to the fund, and the fund can wield that combined ownership power in creative and subtle ways. Part 5 Comparing Funds I will begin talking about comparing funds first from the standpoint of a man named Bubba comparing funds in his employer's 401k plan, and then Bubba comparing funds in his personal brokerage account. Bubba works at the factory. The factory is the administrator of a 401k plan that is managed by Middleman Group. Middleman Group looks at how much money will collectively need to be managed in the 401k. Based on the amount of money, Middleman Group will offer some set of funds for some management fee. If the workers have lots of combined assets, there will be more offerings with lower fees. If the workers have little, they will get fewer options with worse fees. Bubba sees that his 401k plan includes 22 mutual funds. One fund is called a stable value account. This is probably a fund that invests in low-yield products with limited interest rate risk like bank loans or short-term treasuries or insurance annuities. It probably offers 1 or 2% yield regardless of what happens in the stock market. That stable value account will keep excess yield, and is insured against losses. 
another 8 of 22 funds are target retirement date funds. These funds follow a formula of shifting from 95% stocks and 5% bonds to 30% stocks and 70% bonds based on how many years out the target date is. If the target date is 30 years away, like 2055, then it probably has 90% stocks and 10% bonds. 15 years away, at 2040, it may be 80% stocks and 20% bonds. If the date is near, like 2025, it is probably 55% stocks and 45% bonds. There may be one named Retirement Income Fund, which is 30% stocks and 70% bonds. Target date funds often split stocks and bonds each into two-thirds domestic and one-third international. This means target date funds have currency risk for the one-third of holdings that are non-U.S., The idea with target date funds is that there is less risk of loss with bonds than with stocks, so the allocation to bonds should increase as one is closer to retirement. There is some wisdom to this. This idea is hard-coded into the financial industry. If Bubba wants to spend zero minutes of his life thinking about his retirement investments, he might choose a target date fund. Most of Bubba's co-workers choose target date funds. These funds are designed for people who don't know, and who don't want to know, or who don't have the ability or time to understand what is happening with their money or with financial markets. Besides the stable account and target date funds, Bubba sees 13 of 22 funds. 11 are stock funds and two are bond funds. The two bond funds are both aggregate bond index funds, but one is a USA domestic fund and one is international, which means non-US. Both bond funds have an average maturity of 10 years, an effective duration of 7 years, and a nominal yield of 3.5%. The international bond fund is invested in Europe and Japan primarily. The main obvious difference is the currency risk. If the factory was a bigger company, they might get other bond funds, like a shorter duration or longer duration bond fund, or an emerging markets bond fund. Bond fund duration relates to the risk of interest rates changing. Emerging markets usually refers to less westernized countries like China, Korea, India, Brazil, Russia, and the Middle East. Bubba sees 11 stock funds. One is an S&P 500 index fund. This probably has the lowest expense ratio fee of all the funds. S&P 500 funds are considered a large-cap blend. Another eight funds fill out the nine spots on a 3x3 grid that combines company size of large, mid, or small cap versus company objective of growth 
value, or blend. Besides these nine stock funds, Bubba sees two international stock funds. One is developed markets, which means mostly Europe and Japan, and the other is emerging markets. Bubba is done looking at his 401k options. Now he logs into his personal brokerage website. He has both an individual retirement account, IRA, and a taxable brokerage account. After Bubba left a job at the Farm Supply years ago where he had a 401k, he rolled over all the money from the Farm Supply 401k into his personal IRA where he could make transactions faster and more often, and have more investment options. The personal IRA and personal taxable account have virtually identical options at the same brokerage. The main difference is the tax treatment. On the brokerage website, Bubba's most easy-to-purchase choices are from company stocks, or ETFs, or mutual funds. Buying individual bonds or stock options is a level of complexity that he does not want to deal with. Every type of security has its own screening tool. He can use a screening tool for either ETFs or mutual funds. If Bubba is trying to look up 401k funds that are not listed on his brokerage website, Bubba can go to Morningstar.com to look up any fund. Morningstar began as a one-man, one-bedroom mutual fund research company in 1984 and now provides investment research and management services. It does not always have the best website layout, but it has a comprehensive listing that is free or premium. Some public libraries provide free premium access for library users. Bubba uses Morningstar as a backup website when he can't find what he's looking for on another website that he likes better. On his personal brokerage website, Bubba can screen through hundreds or thousands of funds very easily. Many funds are similar. They buy the same stocks. They may refer to a similar index or the same index. If Bubba looks at a stock fund, he can see the investment objective, the target index, the asset portfolio or holdings, the historical distribution percentage, and the expense ratio. If Bubba looks at a bond fund, he can see all that plus SEC yield and effective duration. ETFs do not have share classes, but mutual funds do. Mutual funds can have transaction fees called a load or sales charge. This is separate from the transaction fee a brokerage charges to buy or sell a security. There is a front-end load, a back-end load, or an annual sales charge. These are more common on older mutual funds and obscure funds that are part of 401k plans. An easy way to spot a mutual fund with these charges is if it is a share class of A or B or C. Class I shares means institutional. They have the lowest fees but also a high minimum price, like from $100,000 to $1,000,000. 
oftentimes a class A, B, or C fund offers a lower minimum investment, which is paired with the sales charge to penalize small investments as if they create more work for the fund staff. There are some other share classes also. Institutional iShares should not be confused with the suite of BlackRock ETFs known as iShares. BlackRock iShares are a brand name that is supposed to elicit both the memory of the Class I fund or the Apple product branding where I stands for intelligent. It is just a brand name. Some dealers have their own brand names. State Street has spiders. Invesco has bullet shares. The expense ratio is something to pay attention to. Regardless of fund performance being positive, flat, or negative, the expense ratio is deducted from performance before the investor ever sees an impact to the fund price. The largest funds, or those that are heavily marketed, may have a fee less than 0.1%. 0 0.1% to 0.5% is low and less common. 0.5% to 0.8% is common. 0.8% to 1.5% is the higher end of common. Above 1.5% makes me wonder what I am getting. This applies to both ETFs and mutual funds. Mutual fund sales charges can be as high as 5%. They take that from you just for being a customer. You may find you lose 5% just to buy in, and another 1% or 2% per year on the expense ratio. Some funds charge a short-term redemption fee, possibly 2%, if you pull your money out in less than 30 days. Bubba always checks his mutual fund share class, fees, and minimum investment amount in either the fact sheet or summary prospectus. No one ever talks about how long you need to be in a mutual fund just to make back the money they took from you in the beginning or that they will take from you when you pull out. Even if you don't know all the rules, know that you are playing a game of middlemen, and middlemen play games called rent-seeking, where they look for every opportunity to shave some money or cut the product. With a little bit of practice, Anybody can identify these fees that are hidden in regular financial jargon. The key thing is to remember to look. Two types of funds I want to mention but also not mention are closed-end mutual funds and unit investment trusts. These types of funds are uncommon. While they have moments of opportunity, an investor should research these even more carefully than an ETF or open-ended mutual fund. Shares of closed-end funds and unit trusts can operate at a premium or discount to net asset value. An uninformed investor will not understand the risks with these. A note on currency risk. When Bubba compares funds, Bubba knows he lives in America and all domestic fund shares are denominated in U.S. dollars. If Bubba wants to buy shares of a fund with non-U.S. and non-dollar stocks or bonds, 
then those assets are priced in their local currency. Assets gain or lose value when their currencies gain or lose value. Bubba feels that he should avoid international investments if he is not going to take the time to study trends in interest rates and currency exchange rates. The U.S. is half of the global securities market on its own. Bubba would be more interested in international investing if he felt his country was too small of a percentage of the global securities market. That's all for comparing funds. Part 6. Implications for Cryptocurrency This part is short. I am aware of two unit investment trusts based on crypto in the USA. One is a Bitcoin trust and one is a HEX trust. I am aware of one Bitcoin ETF based on the Amsterdam exchange and an avalanche of pending Bitcoin ETFs in America. Wall Street is preparing for a mass invasion of crypto. The average person will not know that buying a unit trust share or ETF share of crypto is not actually owning crypto. It is exposure to crypto that a fund owns. Again, exposure is to risk and reward. Bitcoin ETFs are the first wave. There will be other types of crypto-backed ETFs in time. There are various reasons why people on Wall Street are creating these products. In most cases, none of these reasons include that they love crypto. ETFs are a way to control crypto supply, suppress crypto price action, and distract people from learning to hold their own crypto. The amount of money that can enter crypto via ETFs may skyrocket some crypto asset prices, but it gives those institutions the ability to slap down the price of assets they own anytime they feel like it. There are some so-called whales in crypto that can make waves, but nothing like what can be done by companies that manage trillions in assets. If someone is going to invest in a particular crypto asset, it would be helpful to know what would happen if a company put a trillion dollars into that crypto. Would they control the supply? What would happen to the price? Things will happen regardless of our feelings. We must watch, be ready, and study how things really work if we don't want to get capsized on the waves. Part 7. The Closing Summary Open-ended investment companies, known as ETFs or mutual funds, are the most common type of public market investment that the general public uses. Regular people, known as retail investors, commonly are faced with selecting mutual funds from a 401k plan offering. Less retail investors use their own brokerage to select from a myriad of ETFs or mutual funds or other securities. Funds allow small money investors to be able to gain exposure to many assets at the same time that they would not otherwise be able to buy individually. Mutual funds allow for reinvestment and small money amounts. ETFs are faster to buy and sell. According to Statista.com, 
total net assets of U.S. registered mutual funds was $22 trillion in 2022, down from $27 trillion in 2021. ETF net assets were $6.5 trillion in 2022, down from $7.1 trillion in 2021. Both are pooled investment vehicles. Mutual funds have existed for 100 years, and ETFs have existed for 30 years. Although funds are common and convenient for investors, the general public suffers from the consequences of giving all the ownership power to fund management companies when investors buy shares of funds rather than buying securities directly. Many investors cannot directly buy all the securities they want, so it feels like there is no alternative. Funds will be used by legacy finance to profit off of both real and fake crypto, with no concern for crypto itself. Real cryptocurrency eliminates middlemen. Funds are middlemen, and those who create funds are middlemen. No one knows how the interaction will play out exactly between middlemen and the crypto world. My thought is that the success of real cryptocurrency benefits not only me, but also all mankind, and cryptocurrency will exist as long as there is an internet on which to publish speech. Cryptocurrency is speech, published on the internet in the form of software code. This episode has been ETFs and Mutual Funds. I hope my discussion helps you to better understand or articulate some of these ideas. Thank you for listening. Have a great rest of your day.